Good afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity if you're viewing in the room. If you are viewing online, we'll enter that into the chat section. And if you're viewing after the fact, you will find the evaluation link in the um, description of the video. It is my pleasure today to introduce three um, presenters. We'll start with Dr. Egalam, who is currently the Program Director for Cardiology Fellowship, Chief of Cardiology here at Northeast Georgia Medical Center and Advanced Heart Failure Specialist. He did his cardiology training at Vanderbilt University um, Medical Center. Next, I'll introduce Dr. Qutab, and he is currently the program director for pulmonology and critical care physician here at Northeast Georgia Medical Center. He completed his pulmonology and critical care medicine fellowship at Wake Forest University. And then I'll also introduce Dr. Mahmood, who is currently the internal medicine chief resident for research quality and safety. He'll be starting a cardiology fellowship with uh, Northeast Georgia here in July. He completed his residency here at Northeast Georgia Medical Center. Join me in welcoming these positions. Good afternoon, everyone. Can you guys hear me okay? Yes, no, maybe? All right. Um, so we don't have any disclosures relevant to the presentation today. So the objectives that we'll be covering today is discussing the different types of pulmonary hypertension groups, um, describing the pathophysiology behind um, pulmonary hypertension due to COVID-19, and summarizing some workup and imaging findings, and then recognizing right ventricle failure and cardiovascular squalae of um, pulmonary hypertension due to COVID-19 infection. So here's an outline of what we'll be doing. I'll start with a case presentation, then discuss a little bit about the basics um, of what the definition of pulmonary hypertension is, what, um, how patients present, some of the diagnostic approaches, ECG imaging findings, hemodynamics, and then Dr. Kutab will discuss um, a little bit more about the uh, the different groups for pulmonary hypertension, the pathophysiology um, for pulmonary hypertension in COVID-19. And then Dr. Egelin will um, give a talk on COVID-19 and cardiovascular squalae, and then pulmonary hypertension and right heart failure. So I encountered this patient um, when I was a second year uh, medical resident. Um, so this was a 77-year-old Caucasian female, came into the ED with dyspnea, had a past medical history of atrial fibrillation, onaliquous, asthma, had gout, fibromyalgia, depression, hypothyroidism, GERD, and hyperlipidemia. She tested positive for COVID-19. Um, CTA was performed, which is negative for PE. And here was her ECG. So it, it may be a little bit difficult for folks in the back, but I pointed out with the red arrows, um, something of an interesting finding, right? And so right next to it, it shows you, you know, what we're looking for there is that R, S and R prime sequence um, in V1. So what you're seeing there is right bundle branch block, which also needs a QRS duration greater than 120 milliseconds and wide slurred S wave in leads um, V5 and V6. So if you, let me see if I can point it out for you. So if you're looking here, if you look at the S waves, they're a little slanted. They're not exactly straight down as they are and if you look at one of the other leads. Um, there's poor S waves, but if you notice here, it's sharp and it's straight down. Whereas here, as you can see, the S waves um, are slanted, similar to the T wave inversions here. Um, so here's her echo at that time. So, Sorry, I'm having some technical difficulties with the video.
right, so in the interest of time, I'll continue on. Um, I'll see if I can bring that over for you guys so you guys can appreciate the videos here. Um, so, so if you look at the videos, so you can see here in this, um, the RV, LV are almost of equal size. The RA and the left A, uh, sorry, the left atrium and the right atrium, um, you can see that the right atrium is actually bigger um, in comparison to the left atrium. And sort of the other thing that I wanted to demonstrate with that was that this patient also had severe um, tricuspid regurgitation as well. Um, so this patient was had worsening respiratory status, ended up requiring an intubation, and then um, ended up requiring pressor support and inotropes. So um, she was on levofed, epinephrine, dibutamine, milrinone. We started inhaled nitric oxide. Um, so there was discussion for advanced mechanical support, but she wasn't stable to be taken to the cath lab. Her lactate was increasing, um, went up to 16. So she was started on bicard drip. We weren't able to optimize volume status. So diuresis wasn't working. So we were in initiating CRRT. So vast cath was placed. Unfortunately, she suffered two PEA arrests. Um, and then ROSC was achieved, but then we had a long lengthy discussion with family about her prognosis and then she was made DNR and she passed away. Um, so what this patient suffered from was pulmonary hypertension, severe, and then right heart failure, secondary to that, which is what the purpose of this talk is, is a discussion of that and how we can screen for it and how we can prevent um, complications. So pulmonary hypertension is a pathophysiological disorder that may involve multiple clinical conditions and may be associated with a variety of cardiovascular and respiratory diseases. So pulmonary hypertension, um, so if you guys remember, the old mean pulmonary arterial pressure used to be 25, that's now 20, and the reason that was changed was when they did hemodynamic studies, they found that the average is around 14. And so when you look at two standard deviations above that, that's where the 20 comes from. And then pulmonary arterial hypertension, you need a pulmonary vascular resistance of greater than two, that used to be three, and pulmonary arterial veg pressure of less than 15, less than or equal to 15. So in brief, you know, we know the WHO classification and the sixth world symposium on pulmonary hypertension classifies pulmonary hypertension into these five groups. Group one is your pulmonary arterial hypertension. Group two is pulmonary hypertension due to left heart failure. And group three is due to lung disease and or hypoxia. Group four is your chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. And group five is pulmonary hypertension with an unclear or multifactorial mechanism. So when we're sort of differentiating them based on hemodynamics, we can talk about pre-capillary, isolated post-capillary and a combined effect. So if you think about you know, how this works and sort of the pathophysiology behind it, so you have pulmonary arteries that go to capillaries, then pulmonary vein, and then you go to the left atrium. So if you have an issue in the left atrium due to left ventricle failure, you're gonna see high pressures on the post-capillary side. And that's what you're really looking for. So if you look at the isolated post-capillary pressures, your mean uh, pulmonary arterial pressures high, your, um, your other pressures, um, especially the pulmonary vascular resistance is gonna be low. So in comparison to the pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension, that's where you're, again, uh, all of these are defined by having a mean pulmonary arterial pressure greater than 20. So you'll have that, but your pulmonary vascular resistance will be greater than two. Um, the other thing to kind of keep in mind is the pulmonary arterial veg pressure. Um, that'll sort of help you differentiate between pre-capillary and uh, post-capillary as well. So in your pre-capillary, you'll have less than 15. Um, and then post, you'll have um, equal to or greater than 15. So how do these patients present? So overwhelmingly, most of these patients have dyspnea. So one of the NIH registry studies looked at this, looked at the presenting symptoms for um, pulmonary hypertension, and they found 98% of patients had dyspnea. And so we can then think about early and late signs. So early signs, dyspnea on exertion, um, and late 
you know, exertional chest pain, um, they may have dysphonia, they may have shortness of breath, and then signs of right ventricle failure. So what sort of physical exam findings can we expect from these patients? So augmented second heart sound, so PT component, uh, right ventricular lift, jugular venous distension, hepatojugular reflex, ascites, all of these are sort of pointing to right uh, ventricle failure. Hepatomegaly, spenomegaly, edema, tricuspid regurgitation or pulmonary regurgitation murmurs, and then S3 gallop. And so when we're differentiating between the two signs of pulmonary hypertension or right ventricle failure, um, some things to think about. So with signs of pulmonary hypertension, you'll get an RV third um, heart sound, you'll get systolic murmur of tricuspid regurge and diastolic murmur of pulmonary regurge. Whereas in RV failure or dysfunction, you're gonna start to see um, volume overload before the heart. So distended and pulsating uh, jugular veins, uh, abdominal distension, hepatomegaly, ascites, pul pulmonary edema, um, and can also go with it depending upon the etiology, um, but mainly peripheral edema. And then diagnostic algorithms. So some things to think about when you're working them up. So if you have a suspected case, um, is it lung predominance or is it a cardiac issue? That's gonna guide a lot of your testing. So pulmonary function testing, chest X-ray, um, more ABGs and then maybe a CTA to rule out chronic thromboembolic disease, but BQ scans mainly recommended for that. Um, and then if you're thinking more of a cardiac uh, etiology than ECGs, um, then you can do echocardiogram, cardiac MRI, those sort of tests. So what sort of findings can you see with RV hypertrophy um, for e ECG, on ECG. So RV hypertrophy will give you an RS um, less than, oh, sorry, greater than one. Um, so that's what we're showing here in lead V1. You can see that the R is uh, greater than 0.5 millivolts. And then R in V1 plus S in lead V5 is gonna be greater than one millivolts as well. And that's highlighted for you in the red. And then you may also get a right bundle branch block, complete or incomplete. And we talked about that with our patients ECG earlier. So right atrial enlargement. So you can get P pulmonale, which is essentially the P wave is now greater than 0.25 uh, millivolts in leads uh, two, uh, and then right or sagittal axis deviation as well. So when we talk about RV strain, here's um, this being pointed out for you. Um, so what you have there in V1 is V1 through V4 actually is ST depressions. Um, you have some T wave inversions in the right pericordial leads. Um, and then you'll also get inferior um, uh, uh, or inverted T waves in leads two, three and AVF as well. And here we have an inversion in lead three. Uh, and then chest X-ray findings. So you'll, you can get C, peripheral hypervascularity or pruning, um, prominent central pulmonary artery and RV enlargement. So really not really specific for pulmonary hypertension, but can sort of clue you in. So when we get echoes, um, so sort of the systemic echo evaluation for pulmonary hypertension should include pulmonary artery systolic pressure, severity of TR, right heart size and function, left heart valvular disease and systolic dysfunction, exclude any kind of congenital heart disease, differentiate between pulmonary arterial hypertension and um, pulmonary hypertension due to left heart disease, and then estimate the RA pressure and evaluate for any kind of pericardial effusions. And then, so the image on the right shows all of those sort of shown to you in a, di uh, in a diagram image. And so again, the echo findings, um, the videos aren't playing, but here the point was to illustrate to you, if you look at the image on the left side, the RV and the LV size. So the RV is, a, you know, usually a third to a half of the LV size. Whereas when you look at the image on the right, the RV and the LV um, are of almost equal size and the RV maybe looks a little bit bigger. And that's our patient from earlier. So RV is certainly enlarged. So when we talk about right catheter hemodynamics, kind of the big ones to focus in on are the ones that we've been talking about, the right atrial pressure, two to six, 
pulmonary arterial pressures normally eight to 20, and then cardiac outputs four to eight, and then the pulmonary arterial wedge pressures uh, mean is um, below 15 or equal to 15. And some of the other things that you can you might get on the readings as well are gonna be systolic, diastolic um, numbers. So systolic pulmonary arterial pressure of 15 to 30, diastolic of uh, uh, four to 12, and then mixed venous oxygen saturation of 65 to 80%. And then arterial oxygen saturation, 95 to 100%, and then systemic blood pressure of 120 over 80. And these are measured values. And then from those, we can calculate some parameters like the pulmonary vascular resistance, 0.3 to 2 wood units. Um, and then, you know, PVR, like we discussed earlier, is going to be low in group two and sometimes in group five, depending upon your etiology. And then also you'll get cardiac index, stroke volume, um, stroke volume index, pulmonary arterial compliance. So why are we talking about it, this? Why is this important? Why should we screen for patients? Why should we be aware of pulmonary hypertension? So there was a study that was done that looked at these. And so if we just left it to routine practice, um, meaning we just waited for patients to come in with dyspnea to the ED or to our offices, what they found was that eight-year survival for these patients was 17%. So two out of 10 people are the left. Um, eight out of 10 died. So when you think about that and you say, hey, we should have screening programs for these, especially since we saw very high um, pressures um, during COVID for um, the right ventricle systolic pressures, for all of these things. And then they had um, pulmonary hypertension essentially in the hospital they went out and know there's been no follow-up. So in this um, scenario, the, they had looked at patients with arthritis that had gone through screening programs for pulmonary hypertension and rheumatological diseases. And they found that 64% um, survival rate at eight years. So you know a difference of four individuals out of 10. So that's almost 50% if you think about it. That's a huge difference in my opinion. I definitely think we should be screening for these patients. All right. Uh, thank you, you know, everyone, and thank you, uh, Dr. Mahmoud, for having me up here. Um, you know, to try to make an understanding of, of pulmonary hypertension. Um, what the World Symposium is trying to do is trying to say, okay, what types are there? Where are they? And so, um, you know, they, they go ahead and they group them. And, and as far as I could tell, it's, it's kind of grouped at the disease pathology. And this disease is not one disease. And so, um, you know, I, and I always kind of try to teach the residents the the way to, to think about diseases, it's to kind of think of the pathophysiology. And so try to think of this the same way, with, you know, when you're taking your board exams and say, you know, is that group one, group two, where is it? And so um, this is the classic, you know, pul pulmonary hypertension. So this is at the pulmonary artery capillary bed. And so, um, you know, and as, and as you could tell that uh, the, the, these are the idiopathic, the hereditary, there's genetic diseases. Drug-induced is going to be, you know, in this area, a lot of that is, is, is methamphetamine. There's connective tissue disease association, HIV, poor pulmonary hypertension from liver disease, congenital heart disease, schistomyosis. And then um, you, ha you have some, you know, some other caveats there. Um, and so this is kind of our, our group, group one at the pulmonary artery capillary bed. Our uh, second slide here is our group two. I'm not going to spend too much time. Uh, since Dr. Egglums is going to talk about this, but this is the heart failure with preserved and reduced ejection fraction, valvular heart disease, and, and congenital um, heart disease. Um, this is the one that I get to see a lot, which is the pulmonary uh, induced, and so this is at the you know pulmonary alveoli, um, and so obviously the, the group two is is kind of after the capillary bed, and what is happening. This is um, at, at the alveoli. And so you're looking at, um, these are the patients with the emphysematous COPD, pulmonary fibrosis. Um, these are the uh, obesity, hypoventilation syndrome, obstructive sleep apnea, hypoxia-induced developmental uh, lung disorders. Um, so th this is kind of the group three. Group four, which is a very, very 
uh, challenging one because because this this is one that can go years without be, being found and then come back to hurt us. So this is the chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, which which we'll we'll talk a little bit about here in a little bit. And the other pulmonary artery obstructions, I, I believe this is the um, uh, uh, veno occlusive disease, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and then always there's there's a group five, which is the the, the miscellaneous, and so you kind of have the other that that really doesn't fit in, you know in other uh, areas. And so uh, when you're taking your boards and, and it doesn't fit one through four, it's probably in five. So. Um, so talking a little bit about the pulmonary uh, pathophysiology. So this is kind of a classic 1950s picture um, of, of the pulmonary capillary bed. So this is kind of the, the group, group one. And just recognize that um, this is, when we talk about pulmonary arterial hypertension, we really talk about at a microscopic level. And so um, you have different mechanisms, the intimal hyperplasia, the medial uh, hypertrophy, and the eventual uh, fight, fight fibrosis. And, you know, what we know is, 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 is it kind of goes from, a, you know, down this patho pathological, you know, changes at, at the cellular level until the point that you get plexiform, uh, plexiform uh, lesions and then necrosis. And so um, you can have patients hemoptysized and so forth. This is, this is where, where, where that, that is coming to. Um, and, and so just recognize that this is, not just a constriction. You give an, you know, you you give a medicine, and then you know everything becomes better. Um, there's there's a whole host of things. So when we talk about pulmonary hypertension, and and we say, okay, well, is COVID nineteen causing pulmonary hypertension? Let's look and see what other you know um, infections are out there that that can cause it. Um, and and you know, looking out there, there there really is HIV, um, which I still believe. If I'm not mistaken, is is a uh, not a completely understood how HIV causes uh, pulmonary hypertension, unless I'm uh, you know wrong on that. But then the other one is schistomyces during um, that uh, you know infection. The the eggs actually uh, mechanically obstruct the the pulmonary artery capillary bed. So those are the two kind of out there in in the literature. There are some that have infections that causes issues that then causes pulmonary hypertension through other uh, mechanisms. But those are, are, are the big ones. So if COVID-19 causes pulmonary hypertension, that's a big deal because, you know, that's, that's, that's not on the, you know, uh, WHO group that, that it causes type one or, or what have you. So the question is, is does COVID-19 cause pulmonary hypertension? And these pictures down here, as we start getting some of the, um, autopsies right at the beginning uh, of the pandemic, what we started hearing is, is that there's widespread microemboli. And, and that's kind of this picture here on, on the left. You also get uh, an endotheliitis uh, that then now has us worried, okay, is this, is this gonna be a, a cause years to come or six months or, or what have you? Is, is there gonna be endothelial damage at that pulmonary artery capillary bed that then causes? Um, disease. And so uh, th there was a lot of discussion and, and a lot of people were, were thinking what's going to happen. Um, and so, you know, when we look at ARDS, which, which we all hopefully should, should, should know what that is, um, we, we know that, you know, aspiration, a lot of you know, trauma, a lot of things can cause uh, ARDS and, and the other viruses out there, adenovirus, metanumavirus, influenza virus out there causes an ARDS. And so the question is, 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 is the um, ARDS from COVID-19 different from, from influenza and other viruses. And, and what we learned is that there is this, this predominant uh, endotheliitis and thrombosis and, and angiogenesis, which is, which is different. Um, and some studies actually looked at and said, you know, there's actually diff, you know, less hyaline membrane disease, which is the classic uh, you know, diffuse alveolar damage from ARDS. So, so the pathophysiology looks to be a little bit different in some studies. In some studies, it shows that the ARDS of COVID-19 is, is not different. So um, interestingly, you know, kind of at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, uh, Gattinoni, uh, which is a very famous pulmonologist in Italy, who was right there in, in, in the, the midst of one of the biggest outbreaks at the beginning, um, you know, termed this, this discussion of, 
L-type and H-type uh, lung injury from COVID-19, um, type one, type, type two. And so, you know, the type two is kind of that, that classic um, ARDS where you have secretions, you have a lot of stuff kind of at the bottom there um, causing ARDS and, and, and so forth. Um, and that's considered the heavy uh, uh, phenotype, the H phenotype. Um, so if you actually were able to cut out the lungs, it would be, you know, it would weigh way more. And then you have this type one, which is kind of unique because you have, um, you know, not many infiltrates, but then you have kind of severe uh, hypoxia. Um, and, and, and so, you know, it was kind of coined that there is, there looks to be two different types of pathophysiology of underlying um, COVID-19 lung injury. And so this is an actual case here that, um, that I took care of. And, and it's a gentleman who came in with COVID-19 um, intubated. And what is kind of unique is that, you know, his chest x-rays um, were not too bad. I mean, those are not the best chest x-rays, but, you know, in the classical sense, when we used to take care of ARDS before the COVID-19 pandemic, you would have a lot more whiteness out there. You know, it looked a whole lot worse by the time that you, you, you kind of develop this, um, you know, you know uh, acute hypercapnic and hypoxic respiratory failure. So something that, that is what Dr. Gattoni, uh, Gattoloni was, was saying is that there's something about this that is different. Um, and so this is kind of the, the, the L type where uh, there's something more to just the ARDS from alveolar filling. There is something happening at the pulmonary uh, artery capillary bed. So the question is, is COVID-19 um, causing pulmonary hypertension or not? And if it is, is it doing it by a group one type, which is at the pulmonary alveolar uh, uh, interface, or is it doing it by causing interstitial lung disease, kind of that group um, three, or is it causing it by, you know, microthromboemboli? Is it causing it by, you know, the mechanisms of chronic CTEF? So this is a really kind of nice question is that, you know, number one is COVID-19 causing pulmonary hypertension. Number two, is it causing it by which mechanism? And so that's what we're all trying to um, figure out. So just a little bit of pathophysiology here. Um, this is uh, uh, from, from this study looking at um, kind of the acute phase of hypoxia on, you know, on the right-hand side, acute um, COVID-19, kind of the silent hypoxia where, you know, um, everything is, it is constricted. Um, and then when you go to the chronic, you are seeing the interval hyperplasia and, and um, pulmonary hypertension, and you look at the lumen and it's even smaller. So, the, so that's kind of the, the theory, you know, what is going on. And, and this looks more like the um, L-type. L so um, looking at this, you know, looking at patients with uh, pulmonary hypertension who, who have COVID-19, only about 12% of patients coming to the hospital in this study have evidence of, of pulmonary hypertension. We know that when these patients hit the door and they have pulmonary hypertension, they have a definite worse outcome. And I think most pul pulmonary care folks and most intensivists who, who lived through this pandemic will, will clearly say there was definitely a, a correlation. And so, you know, 61% versus uh, almost thir 13. So we know that, that you know, if COVID-19 um, somehow affects the uh, pulmonary artery capillary bed endotheliitis, we, we have a problem. Um, and so does, does pulmonary hypertension get caused by the late effects of um, pulmonary fibrosis from, from COVID-19? Um, I, I looked, unless somebody's smarter than me to find the, the data, I couldn't see um, the, you know, the data. So um, what is interesting is this, this pandemic is, is, you know, just years, you know, several years. Um, the question is, 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 you know, should we start looking and finding these patients who have this post COVID-19 fibrosis and start looking at that? So no, no study has been done. If you want to go to pulmonary care fellowship, I would say get started on that study because I don't see, see anything. Um, but, um, but that, that, that is a mechanism by, by, by which can, you know, you, you can have that happen. Um, so then the other one is, you know, is chronic CTEF occurring in these patients? And so um, we know that in the acute phase of the disease, we have um, micro uh, thromboemboli and, and on autopsy, we, you know, we see that. And then the question is, is, you know, will this 
you know, after the acute phase and, and then patients who kind of get over um, COVID-19 acute respiratory failure, will they continue to have um, this pathophysiology? And so, um, it, it, you know, this one study of 101 patients who were very sick, there was about 29%. Um, and this is a little bit more than the other study that actually showed evidence of, of pulmonary hypertension. And then, you know, a lot of these patients who came into the emergency room actually got CTAs. And so um, we all remember uh, a lot of these patients did because we know that patients with COVID-19 did develop acute pulmonary emboli, which was um, a fraction of 1%. But, but the emergency room staff um, decided to, to get a CT pulmonary angiogram once they hit the door. And, you know, when they looked at that, there was not many seen acutely. We do, you know, I, I've taken care of several who did come in with an acute large mass of PE, um, but, but, you know, it, it was just a couple. Um, in, you know, this study, uh, they went ahead and tried to say, you know, patients who had pulmonary hypertension um, with no evidence of pulmonary embolism, where was that, you know, on autopsy? Where, where was it? And it turns out, it, 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 you know, it is more of a micro thromboemboli. Um, in, in, in the, and then also subsegmental location. So um, at this moment in time, there is no strong evidence that COVID-19 is causing a chronic CTEF. And so, um, you know, once the acute phase is, is over, will, you know, CTEF occur, which is chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. Now, one thing, you know, it, you know as, as a pulmonologist, we know when we follow patients who've had a um, large um, PE, years later, they can develop CTEF. I'm not talking about COVID, I'm talking about non-COVID patients. And so number one, the data is, is limited. Number two, how we just not allowed enough time to occur to actually you know, start seeing CTEF. Um, uh, and so this is, this is kind of a, a question that um, you know, we have to take in, in, into account. And that is my portion. All right, uh, hopefully you guys can hear me well. So thanks for having me uh, for this uh, discussion. What I'm gonna talk briefly about or focus more on is more the cardiovascular complications that we've seen with uh, COVID-19. And certainly like our palm critical care folks, once uh, COVID um, hit in 2020, et cetera, um, a lot of patients develop cardiovascular complications. Some had underlying cardiovascular disease, some were young and healthy and had all sorts of sequelae. So certainly what we saw were myocardial injury, right? So these patients who had elevated troponins and you know we would look for coronary disease, sometimes we would see it, sometimes we wouldn't. Uh, some patients had somewhat of a myocarditis picture, right? They'd have a depressed LVEF with elevated troponins, but no coronary disease. And certainly we're seeing more and more patients who manifest with heart failure, some left-sided, right-sided, perhaps in the context of uh, pulmonary hypertension and certainly arrhythmias. We saw a lot of atrial fibrillation uh, in the patients. So it's pretty clear that um, COVID-19 has multiple cardiovascular sequelae. And I think as we go further on uh, and from the pandemic and, and more patients who've had the disease uh, have time, we'll see a lot more things manifesting. So when we talk more about our RV manifestation and, and the whole risk of um, uh, pulmonary hypertension, certainly when, when patients have elevated pulmonary pressures, uh, we know that puts a lot of stress on the RV. Um, certainly patients who've had uh, ARDS with a vascular remodeling, hypoxic vasoconstriction, um, you know, whether in a PE, uh, endothelial injury, all these things are uh, pathophysiologic markers that put a lot of stress, if you will, on the right ventricle and, and can lead to further uh, problems down the road. Now, you know, why is this important and why, why keep an eye on it? Well, the important things that we noticed during COVID, and this has been well documented, is that patients that have COVID uh, who actually develop pulmonary hypertension as a cardiovascular sequelae had worse prognosis than the patients who did not. So clearly you can see in this analysis, uh, the patients with pulmonary hypertension had a higher risk of death and ICU admission. Uh, so important to see that as a risk marker as we um, take care of these patients. Now, keep in mind, you know, I know there's a lot of focus on the pulmonary hypertension itself and the pressures and all that stuff, but really what these patients die from is not the pulmonary hypertension itself, is that they develop right-sided heart failure, and that is what a lot of patients uh, die from. 
So when we look at risk stratification and how we estimate uh, uh, risk uh, for patients who have been diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension, um, you clearly look and see at the top there where you look at patients that have clinical signs or symptoms of right-sided heart failure are in a high-risk category. So keep in mind, a lot of the treatment and management of, of pulmonary hypertension is really directed not only at pulmonary vasodilation, but actually managing and treating right-sided heart failure. And we'll go through some of the principles uh, as we as we think about this and what our approach is. So how does pH and RV interplay and how does that lead to decompensation and, and propagation of the pulmonary hypertension? Now keep in mind, the RV is a fairly thin wall structure. It's not designed to deal with high uh, afterload in, 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 the, in the context of that. Um, and patients who have pulmonary hypertension or COVID or anything that induces that tend to develop systemic hypoxemia. And of course, with that reduction, and, and oxygen, uh, and uh, you can have uh, pulmonary vasoconstriction. Certainly, um, RV wall ischemia happens as well, uh, given, given the pathophysiologic changes there. And the combination of the hypoxia, the ischemia of the RV wall leads to a decrease in the contractility of the RV, and subsequently you have a decrease in the cardiac output. Uh, and, and, and that process sort of uh, feeds back on itself. When we talk about RV failure, it's important to realize how the RV is adapted versus the LV. When we look at the left ventricle, let's say you apply the high afterload to the left ventricle, uh, you can see by that graphic on the, on the right, how the LV uh, stroke volume only slightly gradually declines. But if you look at RV, there's a pretty precipitous decline in RV function with, uh, as you increase um, um, afterload uh, to the RV with a big decline in the stroke volume. Point being is the RV is extremely afterload sensitive, and this is an important principle to keep in mind as you uh, as we take care of these patients. When we look more at RV failure, of course, uh, a lack of contractility or insufficient RV contractility is a big part of this as well. So as your PA pressure is rise and there's ischemia of the wall, there's an overstretching of the RV wall that happens, and of course, uh, the myocytes are at a disadvantage because they don't have that muscular strong recall that, that recall that you would have on the, uh, from the LV. And certainly the derangements that happen at a cellular uh, mechanism or a cellular level also lead to a decrease in the contractile forces. And as we mentioned with hypoxia and the decrease in uh, coronary perfusion, you, you've got a mix of a milieu that really puts the RV at a pretty strong risk of developing uh, into um, RV failure. Having mentioned that and talked about the importance of managing and treating RV failure and identifying and, and why it's pretty important prognostically. The, the main way we diagnose this, again, is predominantly a clinical diagnosis, right? So you, you're examining a patient, they have predominantly elevated JVP. Um, generally, these patients may not have crackles if the LV is not involved. Certain laboratory studies are important. So your pro-BNP, troponins, lactate, uh, to get a sense of where the patient is at clinically. And the ECG, uh, like Dr. Mahmoud uh, had discussed earlier, looking for the classic findings that we see on the, on the ECG. Uh, imaging, uh, chest X-ray can give you a clue. Uh, you can certainly get a sense of uh, a dilated RV, elevated peer pressures. And of course, really the workhorse here is your echocardiogram. So on the echocardiogram, we can clearly define the peer pressures, get a sense of the RV contractility, the RV dimensions, and how that relates to the LV. CTA can be generally be important, especially if a pulmonary embolism is on the differential. Um, and a lot of times that will be uh, pretty good information to know upfront as that can affect um, uh, your management. And of course, whenever feasible, identifying reversible causes and treating those accordingly, including things like acidosis and managing volume status will be, uh, be important. Now, oftentimes when we uh, see some of these folks, um, if things have progressed, they may present more in an acute RV sort of setting with an RV dysfunction and subsequently failure. Um, and as a basic principle, we know a cardiac output is stroke volume times heart rate. And you know, if RV is not working well, the LV doesn't get the volume that it needs to generate a stroke volume. So important to optimize, again, like we mentioned, uh, the preload, optimize the patient's volume status. You know, the, the RV being volume overloaded, aggressive diuresis to achieve appropriate um, volume status would be important. Certainly use of inotropes is, is key as well. Uh, a lot of times if, if the patient's blood pressure will allow, we certainly like to use um, a, a primal cord to augment RV function if needs be. Uh, sometimes if pressure is really low, you may have to 
uh, predominantly rely on the, on the vasopressor to drop your blood pressure up and, and get adequate RV uh, function going. And then of course, RV afterload reduction, right? We wanna correct any acidemia, hypoxia, and maintain appropriate long volumes if the patient is ventilated and up optimize blood pressure as well as, as part of that whole uh, process. Now, clearly given the clinical circumstances and we wanna work on reducing um, the afterload, we wanna institute measures that are gonna allow us to reduce the PVR and uh, as a result, reduce afterload. And by reducing the afterload, certainly we, our hope is to improve RV stroke volume and improve uh, the patient's um, a cardiac output. And this is where the role of the pulmonary vasodilators come into place, whether you're using sildenafil or other medications, some, you know, if it's a typical pH patient, then you get into the realm of uh, ERAs, et cetera, that we'll uh, talk about briefly. Now, despite having put in uh, the initial therapeutic attempts, uh, you know, sometimes or despite our best efforts, some patients do end up um, progressing and, and clinically failing. And depending on the circumstances, we do have mechanical support options that we may use. So for example, if you looked at some of our, like a post-LVAD patient that develops RV failure, um, Impella RP or tandem RVAD may be something uh, useful in that setting. Uh, uh, Protect Duo is, a, is another mechanical support option that we can configure in the RV uh, configuration and, and help patients uh, work there as well. And certainly fall fails. Uh, unfortunately, some of these patients do end up on ECMO um, and again, uh, some do well, just depending on the clinical circumstances. And, and uh, those are the things to uh, keep in mind. Now, when we go back to the topic of pulmonary hypertension, right? So, you know, what are the three main pathways uh, that we want our medications to target so we can reduce afterload and, and help improve um, your RV uh, function? So really, there's three main pathways, and I'll just briefly touch on this as, as we could have a whole lecture talking about each of these, but it's an endothelin pathway, right? So when that system um, is stimulated, uh, you, you end up with a lot of vasoconstriction. So we've got medications that target endothelin pathway to cause um, some relaxation in the vascular bed. And then of course, your nitric oxide pathway, as we know, when we stimulate a nitric oxide pathway, we get increased nitric oxide production that used to pulmonary vasodilation, which then allows for more uh, increased RV function uh, in that context. So we've got medications, PD-5 inhibitors, and uh, SGCL2-stimulators uh, like Rio-Sigwat that target that pathway. And of course, we have our prostacycline pathway, right? So when we stimulate that pathway, we, we do have uh, vasodilator processes. So there's specific pH-targeted medical therapy that we can apply in the correct clinical setting. Now, again, we're still learning about COVID and pH. So, you know, using any of these in that context is somewhat off-label, but, but in any context, we're typical pH, and these are the medical therapies that we generally are reaching for and um, working to get patients on. Now, when we look at pulmonary hypertension <clears throat> management algorithm, uh, the most important part is to really have a clinical suspicion for it, right? So if you don't think about it, you will not make the diagnosis. And again, the, the workforce there is really having an echocardiogram. Uh, and then subsequently, all the patients before you institute any specific pulmonary vasodilator therapy must have a right heart cath study done. Uh, just like uh, Mahmoud uh, showed earlier, uh, when, when the patients have a right heart cath done, we define their PVR, what is their wedge pressure. And as a result, we can definitively subclassify the patient into what group of pulmonary hypertension they have. Subsequent to that, it's important to have, you know, folks who have expertise in taking care of these patients. Uh, you know, a lot of these medications uh, cost $100,000 to $200,000 a year for, for institution. And so, you know, having someone with some expertise who's taking a lot of care of these patients is very important. So getting your cardiologist, pulmonologist uh, involved would be key. Um, and for patients, uh, we always do risk stratification. There's several risk stratification tools out there. Uh, for example, there's a French pH registry score um, and, and several others that tell you what risk category is the patient in. So patients who are more in that low to intermediate risk group, they can be treated with oral therapies. Uh, generally speaking, patients who are in a high risk category uh, based on the scoring system are the folks that you generally want to be as aggressive as possible and start on prostacycline therapy, um, preferably IV and subsequently sub-Q. And for patients who overall fail therapy, the treatment option here is really lung transplant. Um, I think a lot of times I hear feedback, well, don't they need a heart transplant as well? 
Now, for patients with pulmonary hypertension, the primary driving issue is related to the pulmonary artery, and the treatment there is, is, a, long, is a lung transplant if they're high risk and not responding to therapy. And clearly, these patients need to be followed closely as an outpatient with ongoing titration, addition of medications, and adjustments accordingly. Now, how do we manage these patients in a more acute setting? So again, mentioned diuretics. So judicious, judicious use of diuretics, aggressive diuresis. I mean, a lot of these patients can hide volume. I mean, we've had one lady that we diuresed 50, 60 pounds. That's, that's how much volume she had on board. So you wanna keep going as much as possible. Uh, and the more complicated patients, certainly having a swan in place is a good approach, right? So you do a swan guided approach, diurese the patient, goal to get a CVP perhaps in that eight to 10 range uh, to get them to uvolemia. Uh, if there's any evidence of hypoxia, so using appropriate you know, the nasal kind of oxygen, uh, high flow oxygen, whatever is needed uh, to appropriately <clears throat> maintain their oxygen level would be uh, clinically important to institute those. Um, anticoagulation in these patient population is a bit controversial now, but I mean, certainly if someone has CTEF, they, they warrant that. Um, in some subgroups, um, Perhaps when you're looking at hereditary or idiopathic, there's some subgroups you may look at anticoagulation, but generally speaking, it's not standard of care unless you have some strong indication otherwise. It's important to realize that the management of pH has really evolved. I mean, early on, most folks were using Blosantin, which is an endothelin receptor uh, pathway drug. And those studies were more shorter studies. They looked at six minute walk distance, et cetera, et cetera. But now with the more recent therapies that we have, Trapostano, Macetentin, Selexapeg, there's a lot more focus on event-driven outcomes. So uh, readmission rates, um, patients' freedom from morbidity and, and freedom from having worsening heart failure. So we're learning a lot more about treating these patients and we have a lot of really good medications that really uh, change the outcomes of these patients. So I think future therapies that we look at as, as we learn more about pH and what's involved, um, when we talk about COVID-19 and pH, and, and as Dr. Kotaba alluded to, it's not clear which of these pathophysiologic processes really drives pH in these patients. Now, as we have more echo studies and we have thousands of patients and we're looking two, three, four, five years down the line from their initial infection, we may realize that more and more of these patients look more like, say, a group one patient, or they may look more like a group three. But I think as we do studies, we really need to understand the underlying pathophysiologic process because then that's gonna determine how we manage and care for these folks. Of course, the goal as always is to maintain a low risk status and improve the patient's quality of life. And you know, when you take care of these patients, we need frequent reassessments with our risk assessment tools to see how well they're doing. And longitudinal management is important, right? So you know, looking at additional clinical information, how's the patient doing functionally? When we see them in clinic, we're doing six minute walk distance tests. Um, repeating our echocardiogram serially to see how RV dimensions are looking, you know, what's our RVSP, what's the degree of tricuspid regurge, and uh, intermittently obtaining right heart cath invasive hemodynamics to compare at the beginning to say six months later, how's that improved and what changes have we noticed for the patient. Uh, so really in summary, uh, the most common presenting symptom of uh, pulmonary hypertension is dyspnea. And just keep in mind that a new definition has changed uh, based on the world's the most recent World Symposium on pulmonary hypertension. And now we're using a mean PA of 20 or above. And then PVR of two you know, above is considered uh, now abnormal based on the most recent studies. No one, again, no one is clear where COVID-19 falls in this realm, but we do know pulmonary hypertension is a bad disease and you want to manage it as, as well as possible. And applying the basic principles we know about RV function and dysfunction, in terms of optimizing preload, contractility, and afterload, and then ensuring that we, we determine the WHO functional classification so we can treat the patient appropriately. And, and overall, I would say, keep in mind, you know, when we talk about pulmonary hypertension, it's, it's a whole umbrella term, right? So you've got to figure out which of the five categories does the patient fall into. And when we talk about these um, drugs, the selexapegs, the ERAs, these really apply predominantly for the patients in group one, um, and, and to some extent, uh, some patients in group three uh, can benefit from inhaled uh, prostanoid therapy and perhaps some in group five. But the vast majority of patients with pulmonary hypertension are group two. They're patients with FPF and heart failure. So it's important not to misdiagnose the patients and put them in the wrong category and treat them with medicines that they shouldn't be 
heaven. So appropriate workup, clinical context uh, is very important. And, and with this whole COVID-19 angle, we just need to learn more and figure out how we'll take care of these patients as times goes on. All right. That's it for us. Thank you. Do we have any questions or comments? Thank you, uh, everyone, for a great presentation. Um, I had a question regarding the COVID-19 uh, pulmonary hypertension kind of development. Um, is there a specific timeline that we've noticed um, with people who, you know, didn't have pulmonary hypertension at baseline and then had COVID and developed pulmonary hypertension? Is it weeks, months, or years, or all of the above? Gotcha. I'll give my perspective and then our colleagues here can jump in. So I've seen patients who were otherwise healthy, no pulmonary hypertension, and that index presentation, we saw elevated pressures on the, on the echo. Like I remember one lady, she was uh, 30 years old, no pH prior to that, and her index hospitalization, ARDS sort of picture, and she had elevated uh, PA pressures. So I think it could be pretty short, um, but I also was seeing patients who initially they came in, it was more of an LV dysfunction sort of picture that gets better. And then 12 months down the line, now we're seeing elevated PA pressures. So I don't know what your comments would be. Yeah, just, you know, I would, I would say the vast majority of them are, are acute. I think, I think we're still trying to define, um, you know, pulmonary hypertension you know, six weeks, eight weeks, a year or two later. I mean, you know, the, the, the thing with research and why it's so important to understand is, you know, we can find anecdotal cases and say, ah, here's, here's a patient who has pulmonary hypertension and they didn't have it, but was that because they're developing pulmonary hypertension of some other diagno diagnosis or is it driven by COVID-19? So, you know, um, that's a very good question, but, you know, you got to remember that if COVID-19 never occurred, there are other patients that may have developed Pulmonary hypertension, anyhow. So, um, Dr. Mahmoud is is you know is is actually looking at that question right right now, um, and I'm sure other pe you know people are too. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for the presentation. Fantastic. You guys like wrestling a lot. You got a nice tag team there. <laughs> uh, most important thing of, that you see and you what I've read in the whole thing is 72% of the people who got COVID-19 has some COVID mortality already going on, you know, from hypertension, cancer, whatever, arthritis, and so on. But the most important thing that I took away from this was 72% were obese. Mm -hmm. So when you got obesity already going against you, more or less, you lack exercises, your liver is not going to be a normal liver. It's going to be completely, you know, it's either micro or macrostatotic liver. So you figure out you also got uh, pedal edema or ankle edema, more or less. So to what degree did this influence, you know, in part take more or less in the decline of health of these people who were probably going to die at some point in time, more or less. And the other thing is that interests me because, you know, reading previous studies, it's very Japanese also treating COPD. Did you guys ever use CoQ10 uh, mega doses, like 1,200 milligrams, which is fantastic for the mitochondria and the cell, increasing the ADP from to ATP? Um, I personally didn't. I don't know if you I, guys I use. No, we did not use CoQ10 much um, in the treatments. Uh, but a very good point um, about the, the, these patients having a lot of comorbidities, right? The patients that come in and don't do so well. Uh, like you mentioned, if a patient is obese, hypertensive, uh, maybe they have, uh, you know, a sort of an OSA sort of picture, they're already prone to be that group through pulmonary hypertension phenotype. And whether or not uh, sprinkling a little bit of COVID on top of that, then, uh, you know, potentially it's that process. Uh, that, that's certainly another thought about how that could work. I did forget to mention, if you have a question online, if you'll put it into the Q&A chat, we'll ask that for you. I'm going to just answer just one point. I just, I, you know, I just want to say one thing, you know, doctor, you, you brought a very good question um, and, 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 you know, something that has not been answered, which is, you know, in the ICUs, we saw a ton of obese 
patients on life support and, and didn't survive. And you really didn't see um, a lot of, you know, skinny folks. And, and I think a lot of us were waiting to see, you know, a, a huge trial to show that. Um, and I, I haven't seen that. But, you know, what is interesting is, is you know, when you look at this internationally, um, you know, when you take for, for account Africa and, and you look at how many people ended up in ICUs in Africa and died, and you, and you compare that to the Western world, you will see that, that less people entered the ICU and less people died. And then you go to India and you would have thought the same thing. And so there is something to be said about the, 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 the obesity um, uh, component. And I think it would, it would be nice to really, you know, but the problem, and I'm sure the reason why it's not been, you know, written is because each country has a different definition of, you know, why they're entering the ICU with COVID, why are they dying from COVID? And I think that that data at a macro level is, is challenging to get, but there is definitely a signal that that is there, but I'm not aware of anyone who's truly re researched it, but thank, thank you for bringing that out. Thank you so much for the great lecture. I had two questions. Uh, the first question was, um, you all spoke about the pathophysiology that group one, uh, group three, and group four could be the causes for COVID-19 surpalming hypertension. But given that there were like a couple of cases that we have seen of COVID-19 associated myocarditis, cardiomyopathy, do you think there could be a possible uh, uh, possibility of having also group two pulmonary hypertension from COVID-19? And the second question that I had was a lot of patients who have COVID-19, um, we admit them to the ICU, they get treated, they go on oxygen, even after doing a six minutes walk test, they require uh, four to five liters of oxygen, but the echoes during uh, ICU stay and even on, uh, on the floors doesn't show any evidence of pulmonary hypertension. So is there any data or any type of uh, uh, recommendations from you all of whether how closely we should monitor these patients in the outpatient setting uh, by doing serial echoes to look for certain, certain subtle findings to consider then doing a possible right heart cath and then confirming the diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension and treating them earlier uh, to prevent worsening of the pulmonary hypertension. So, uh, so definitely, I mean, if, if a patient came in with, you know, LV dysfunction in the context of COVID, you know, whether you want to invoke myocarditis or, or some other etiology in that context, um, if, if they have LV dysfunction long, in, long enough, I mean, certainly they can have develop a group two picture from heart failure, just like with, you know, any other patient with prolonged LV elevated pressures and stuff. So, so certainly that could be a mechanism, but I would think that may be more sort of chronic and, and, and down the road, so to speak. Now, with regard to uh, a monitoring and looking for pH, uh, generally my approach has been if, if I, you know, because we sort of have this uh, COVID survivor clinic uh, uh, protocol that I've been, I've been doing and some of my colleagues have been doing as well. So, so usually when I see the patients in, in the clinic, because um, a lot of them will self-refer. I was in the hospital with COVID. I heard COVID affects the heart. You know, I want to see a doc and, and kind of see what's going on here. Or some may come because they have heart failure. But generally what I've done is at least within uh, three to six months of that COVID admission, you know, I'm getting an echo repeated. And then within the next six to 12 months, I, I'm getting a follow-up study. But the other thing I've been doing with some of these folks is um, doing a cardiopulmonary exercise test, CPET or CPEX, if you will, um, as a way to document changes in the patient's functional status in, in a longitudinal way. So we look at their exercise uh, VO2 max. So I've, I've had quite a few patients who came in and their numbers initially was low. And as we treated them and took care of them, we see that functional capacity and ability to exercise gets better. And of course, the, the advantage of the CPEX is you're looking at the not only cardiac function, but also how that integrates with pulmonary function, skeletal muscle function, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, so th those are the things I've been looking at, the echoes, CPEX, um, as a way to monitor and, and follow these patients. So I don't know what you're Thank you. Uh, I, you know, at this point, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing uh, echoes until kind of a, you know, clinical finding. And, and, and the nice thing is, is, is that a lot of patients get echoes anyway. So, so, you know, whenever I see these patients um, back, uh, we are looking at their, um, you know, record and, you know, and so forth. But uh, I don't recall seeing any crazy high blood blood pressures. Um, but, not, you know, I'm going to 
give this over to, to you know, Dr. Mahmoud and just kind of go over, you know, his thoughts and so forth, because that, that, that is definitely a question. So that's part of the retrospective observational that we're doing to look at that is to see, you know, <clears throat> because we don't have that answer yet in the literature. So if you developed, you know, quote unquote, pulmonary hypertension during your hospital stay, what happened to you after you got discharged? Was it an immune mediated condition to where it resolved after inflammatory cascade improved? Or does it have, you know, sort of a prolonged life last lasting effect on you and you continue to have pulmonary hypertension? you know, three months, six months. So we're gonna go back and we have about 3,100 patients that had echoes done during um, hospitalization. We're gonna compare that, you know, post um, like three months, six months, a year and see if they had a repeat echo, does it still show pulmonary hypertension or did that go away? Thank you. Any other questions or comments? Oh, here we go. Dr. Mahmoud, awesome presentation. Had a quick question. So, I mean, a lot of these were like hospitalizations, COVID infections, pretty severe. Um, let's say for outpatient setting, I mean, a lot of us are, I am here. So let's say we have a patient who's just minimal oxygen outpatient. They're already vaccinated a while ago, but they're coming in shortness of breath, minor shortness of breath cough, and they have already severe CAD. They're following up with heart failure or something like that. Should we be concerned about any of those inflammatory issues or leading to pulmonary hypertension and repeat echoes or send them back to cardiology in a couple months? Or what would you say? Because if they're on minimal O2 setting, if no oxygen, let's just say they're having some cough and things like that. I usually won't say, oh, you need to get um, any kind of antiviral or anything. But I'm just concerned now, like, were any of those studies kind of mentioning outpatient and work up like that? So honestly, I don't have a good answer for that. Um, and the reason for that is because is this is still so new, right? So this is sort of the first fall slash winter where we weren't bombarded with COVID. Um, so data is still lacking on what do we do with these patients, outpatient setting, um, who's likely to develop you know, pulmonary hypertension in, in the context of COVID. We know you know, what patients will develop it, what are the other risk factors. So that's what I would tell you to do is keep that in mind. So if you have a patient with dyspnea, do the full workup, right? So even if they're on minimal oxygen settings, you know, we, that's why one of the reasons we talked about the other five groups, right? So keep, keep that in mind that yes, it may not fit and it may not be COVID induced. It may be something else. So you can still get pulmonary hypertension from any of the other, right? So they can still develop group one pulmonary hypertension. So just keep that in the back of your mind. I don't know if Dr. Agalom or Dr. Kutov have any additional thoughts. Yeah, so, you know, the way I, I kind of look at it, if the patient, now, you know, we know there's a, the chronic COVID or like sort of a long hauler syndrome that, that some patients may, may develop. But the way I look at it, I think you, you sort of go back to your physical exam, right? So if you're examining the patient um, and you're hearing, you know, a prominent P2 and there's JVP, there's low extremity edema, you check a pro BNP and that's elevated and the clinical they're not doing well. I think your pre-test probability there is fairly high, right? So you, you've got something to go on. And, and an echo is doesn't expose a patient to radiation, it's relatively cheap. That's something you can obtain to, to get a sense of where the patient is at. Now, if you have a patient who's otherwise doing well, minimal symptoms, labs are fine, uh, they've progressed well, perhaps that patient you may not need to go ahead and screen. Um, again, my view is a little biased because the patients I see usually have some issue going on, right? That's why they're coming to a cardiologist's office. So again, that's why I sort of stick to that three to six month mark to, to get a repeat study and then somewhere uh, at least 12 months from that time. Um, and, and then a lot of these folks come in and you're thinking, well, is it the heart? Is it the lungs? Is it a combination? And again, this is where the cardiopulmonary exercise test is really powerful for me because I can really distinguish where the main issue is. If it's predominantly pulmonary, well, I'm sending them to Dr. Katab to, to work on that. But if it's cardiac and we need to go down that path and get a right heart cath and figure some other things out. So that, that's another good way to, to do it. And then with the CPEX, again, you can also trend and see objectively, how's this patient doing? Because that's really ultimately what the patients come in for. Hey, it's six months since I had COVID. 
I, I can't go back to work. I've gone back to work. I can't keep up. And they're asking, what is the problem? Where is the issue? I need a problem fixed. So, so, you know, very good question. Um, I, you know, I run the, 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 the pulmonary portion of the uh, COVID long, long haulers uh, since, you know, syndrome. Um, I, I will tell you the vast majority of these patients, it's airways disease. Um, and so, you know, you, you follow them, you give them the Simbacort, the, you know, budesonide, you give them the Brio and, and all that stuff. You hear wheezing on exam, you check their PFTs and they, you know, within three to six, six months, a lot of those people get better. Um, and then there are other people who, who don't and inevitably, you know, you'll get a PFT and you'll find a reduced DLCO, you get a CT scan and you find some pulmonary Five, you know, five, fibrosis. What's interesting is, and, 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 you know, the very challenging part, part of this is that you have a subset of patients who, you know, the airways disease goes away, the reactivity of the airway, the inhaler is no longer working, they're short of breath, you do a DLCO, it's normal, you get a CT scan, it's normal, you sit there and say, is it, you know, pulmonary hypertension, and you get an echocardiogram, and it's normal, you get a VQ scan, maybe I'm missing, you know, chronic CTEF, even though there's no pulmonary pressures at this point, the VQ scan is, is, is clear. So, you know, there is those subset of patients, and they're very challenging. Emery's wait, wait list is about a year to get into, speak to a, a pulmonary and what they're going to tell you is they're going to check everything that, that we, we did. And then they're still short, short breath and tell you to go exercise. Um, and so, you know, we don't exactly know um, what is very interesting, you, you know, after, you know, practicing for, for uh, almost a decade after fellowship is we do get these patients who come to clinic and they say, doc, I just can't breathe. And, and this is before COVID and, and, and you say, okay, well, I'm going to do, do the million dollar workup. Everything co comes back you know, negative, um, you do a CPEC study that you find deconditioning, but I've actually seen, you know, I would say about 30 to 50% of those patients, if you follow them long enough, they develop pulmonary hypertension. I'm not talking about COVID pulmonary hypertension, if that exists, I'm talking about just pulmonary, pulmonary hypertension. So those patients, I have many of those in my clinic that, that, you know, I see at least once a year. And it is, a, it is an interesting phenomenon that they're short of breath one year out and everything looks like it's healed and why they're short of breath is, is, is a question. And so, um, again, that, that is why, you know, we need to continue, you know, that's why you don't discharge these, the, these patients, you keep following them up. Great. All right. I think that's it. Right. Thank you so much. Thanks.